Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hello from Nashville, Tennessee. AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming to you live from beautiful, sunny Provo. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we're talking to Chris Heilman. Hello, welcome from Berlin. Did I say that German enough? Yeah, it's always fascinating how people pronounce my name. <laughs> how do you pronounce your name? Heilman. I got close. Yeah. Uh, do you want to just give a brief introduction, who you are, what you do? I can do that, yeah. Um, I've been a web developer for about 20 years. Uh, 996 was the first big website that I built for a company that might be known for building cars. And um, since then, I always was very fascinated with the technologies of the web, like first with HTML, and then I got to Perl, and later on the PHP, and then JavaScript. And, uh, and I've been stuck with JavaScript ever since, wrote a few books about it, did a lot of trainings about it, blogged about it from... 2005 on and uh, yeah nowadays i after being at mozilla and being at yahoo and now i'm at microsoft as a senior program manager is the official title and i'm working on the edge browser and a lot of the javascript things that are going on there and today we wanted to talk about some of the things that i learned lately about teaching javascript and what kind of problems i found there yeah that makes sense we we ran across your article yeah it looks like you wrote it back in december but it still felt really relevant, at least to me, when you were talking about, so you learned JavaScript, now what? Or what now? Do you want to just give us a little context on that? And then we can kind of talk about advice for people who are coming into JavaScript from whatever background they came from before? Sure. Uh, I was invited by the women tech makers in Berlin to give a talk about JavaScript at the end of their crash course into JavaScript. And I was super excited about this because I, I learned JavaScript a long time ago when the Rhino book was the only feature we had. And like then later on, the, the, the other books that we were going through. And nowadays, you have all these offerings that is actually becomes very easy. And JavaScript is this fashionable thing to know. It's like the, you know, JavaScript, you're going to have a job in two days, like getting millions of dollars and everybody will want to look at you. And and the main difference to back then when we had JavaScript and what JavaScript is now is that nowadays you're not learning a language, you're not learning a syntax, or you're not learning the, the structure of JavaScript or what it does as a programming language. But JavaScript is an ecosystem. It's like it ranges from like JavaScript in the browser to like building robots with it and uh, running it server side on Node to basically build uh, heavy interfaces and APIs with it. So uh, a lot of these things can be completely overwhelming. So I felt a bit. Uh, I found a bit sympathetic with the people that just had that course and said like, okay, now, now here's the world of JavaScript. Here's what's happening. What else is going to come your way in the nearer future? And here is what you should be thinking about not to get overwhelmed because 
with all the facets of JavaScript as it's so uh, versatile in its uh, in its applications, all of them have best practices and they're all at odds with each other. So you find you look at five different places on the internet, you get five different pieces of advice. What is the right way to write JavaScript? Or otherwise, you're not a professional person. And there's a lot of peer pressure. There's a lot of aggression. There's a lot of like, oh, you got to do it right or we're not going to play with you kind of thing. There's a lot of like... <laughs> I don't know. People have, have their own opinions and call them best practices. And I found in my whole career that best practices are found in the project that I'm on right now. Like an intranet site that is only for a bank that 400 people in the building are going to use have a lot different best practices when it comes to JavaScript than a website like yahoo.com or Google or Microsoft product. So we always get these like best practices from top down. And when somebody just had a course and they go into this world, I, I wanted to give them a good like head start and say like, here's the seven things to do to set yourself up for success. And here's the things not to worry about rather than like uh, being there and like, oh my God, I know a bit of JavaScript, but I'm actually stupid. And we, none of us are, we are all boiling with water. JavaScript was built in 10 days, defined in 10 days, the language, there's so many weird things in it that after like not since 1999 I played with it I still find things every day that I'm like okay I have no idea why people do that or why people do that I found a few JavaScript patterns that people keep talking about and I never saw the uh, practical implications of them I just found them that easier to write and people come to me and say like oh that saved us so much memory and that's so great to know and I'm like good that's amazing I have no idea what you're talking about but you're obviously happy with what I've done. So that makes me happy too. So I wanted to get people on the right foot to start with JavaScript and not feel like get this deluge of information coming and make them feel disenfranchised with the thing just right after they learned it. I think like the overarching theme for 99.9% .9 of it all is it depends. Yeah, that depends. Yeah. I really like um, what you said uh, right at the end there about getting people to helping people to not feel disenfranchised about this, right? Yeah. Like it's such a problem. There's so much, there's so many places and there's not a lot of vulnerability that's very visible saying, boy, you know, today, I, like people, I oftentimes go to conference and I speak at a conference and everybody thinks that I know Angular like front to back. And it's like, you know, I've never, I, I couldn't write RxJS, for example, which is like the core how to do memory state management in Angular. I couldn't write it if I had to because I just hardly done any of it. I just, I don't know it. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong that there are places, things that I don't know. And it's so easy to feel so lost. Everybody else knows everything and I know nothing. Yeah, there's a lot of like people say things to sound clever and then everybody is impressed with them and feels bad for themselves not knowing it. And there's a lot of peer pressure at conferences as well. I mean, it's like I always I give about a conference talk a week right now and it always cracks me up when I go to events and I see other speakers ask the audience a question and everybody puts their hand up that they know it. Of course, they all put their hands up and know it because they don't <laughs> want to be seen as the person in the audience that admits that they don't know it, although probably 60 to 70 percent don't know it. I've solved that problem in one of my talks. Then I actually call on someone and ask them the answer and I ask them why. So if you usually ask them why, then you, you usually will get like for my talk is specifically a CSS talk. And I ask someone to choose um, the correct specificity rule. And so there's actually like a mathematical equation behind it. And so if somebody says, well, it's this color. I'll say, okay, well, what is the number behind it? And usually I'll only get like one hand raised after a bunch of people put their hands down because <laughs> they're just kind of guessing. Nobody wants to admit it. Yeah. 
I still mm. think we should hunt the person down that put the word specificity in the CSS spec. It's impossible. <laughs> it's just well, there's a another bad word. There's another we'll good point. Hunt them that. down with real specificity. Yeah, gonna... another good good point to that whole thing, and that is like when I give talks, I try to be better now about saying things like "we all know," right, or yeah. even asking people to show, "Have you done this?" Unless it matters in the for the purpose like i want to understand how many people have done this and how many haven't so that i know whether or not to dig deeper into that content or not yeah i've yep. done a blog post about this called seven things not to say on stage and that's all about that that's like that's easy or everybody should know that or uh, you probably have done that before kind of thing like to make people feel bad by the time you're trying to teach them it's a, it's a very important message to to give and i mean sometimes you just cannot uh, i'm actually getting very tired of like how focused all of our events are and there's far too many of them like, I mean, you go to a Node conference and everybody will talk about the Node best practices. But at the same time, there's one CSS talk there and everybody makes fun of it or everybody says like, oh, it's too so hard to do. It's like we're, we're building products as groups with different skill sets. If you don't like CSS, then freaking don't touch it and partner with somebody who knows it. It makes so much more sense. That whole JavaScript fatigue that we're feeling right now as well, where people like, oh, JavaScript is slow and makes everything horrible. And you're like, yeah, if you use five libraries and you're using them all together because you use one module in each of them, yes, of course, it's slow then. JavaScript is not the problem. Us overusing it is the problem. So there's a lot of like, the, uh, by specifying ourselves in these subcultures, we get very aggressive towards each other. And I don't think that makes any sense at all if you see how any product gets rolled out in production in reality. I kind of wonder, I mean, my experience in doing this since, you know, I, I don't know, I, I, although I'm not quote unquote new anymore, it wasn't like, it wasn't too like recent that I was very new. And I, I found it like very rewarding to kind of share like some of those embarrassing, you know, experiences I've had rather than like the inverse of kind of what we're talking about here. I don't know. So I would just like maybe encourage people to let down their guard a little bit because it's been super rewarding for me to share those with people and hear like, oh, I, you know, I've, I've experienced that too. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, you've encouraged me to keep going, stuff like that. It's very inspiring and encouraging for me to hear. Yeah, fa failure is a very important part to actually show people that you're vulnerable and you just admit flat out that you don't know things. In job interviews, when I interview people, I make mistakes in front of them because I want them to disagree with me. I want to see how they actually can hold themselves up in a conversation when a product manager tells them to do something they shouldn't be doing. So I basically, I, I say a thing that is that is obviously wrong and that person, when it doesn't perk up, then I basically like, okay, he doesn't listen or, or he doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really understand what this is about i think 90 percent of our job is communicating with other people and we don't want to admit that but sooner or later if you want to have a career that's something that you would have to know in a company as well not only being the coder in the corner that gets a lot of money now i do want to ask this because it seems like a lot of people are, are worried about the sort of status right it's you know i want to fit in i want to understand how much of the issue that that comes into a lot of the things we're talking about is the sort of paradox of choice that you talked about where JavaScript is everywhere and there are all kinds of solutions to these problems and how much of it is this culture issue that we're talking about where it's, you know, I'm worried about whether or not people think I know what I'm talking about and blah, 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 blah. Well, there's a bro culture problem that like the, uh, that, that, 
JavaScript became such an explosion that everybody wanted to be like the next uh, John Resig and do like a jQuery thing to actually roll up the whole market with a cool solution. That's why we have these 10,000 of little libraries. And now we've got millions of NPM modules, which almost all do similar things, just slightly different. So instead of collaborating, people wanted to have their name in big letters on top of GitHub or something to do that. Uh, I'm actually happy that that crypto happened and that now blockchain is a thing because that's where the most terrible people are now moving towards and uh, and fighting their fights there <laughs> but uh oh my gosh. Oh, no. i'm so I really that. Just, <laughs> i really want to hear more about that why well, why do you why do you think that it's or the focus you... it's basically it's uh, you mumble that in the silicon valley in a cafe now and you basically get vc funding like uh, that's uh, that's basically what JavaScript was the most the most focused thing right now. It now shifts partly into AI, where like, oh my god, I do deep learning with Python. No, tell me more. Or I do crypto and blockchain, and they're uh, like in in uh, in finance services, and oh, tell me more. So, where the big money is running after, like where where the investment is happening, that's where the most aggressive people conglomerate. And I think uh, JavaScript is is over the peak a bit, and now we're actually looking back back at our community and say like, hey, how about being nice to each other instead of just being like the cooler person ever. I was I was always confused when people came up to me and said like, so is Paul Irish better than you or not? And I'm like, I don't know. I, I mean, I know him as a person. I know he's a nice guy. He's a very good developer. I don't know. He did. We do, don't do the same things. I really don't care. I would love to work with him on a project. We probably would work well together as well. But to me, it's much more important how good you are working with other people than how good you are in on your own. Because sooner or later, you will get sick or you want to have a life or you want to have a social uh, timeout. And then your code should stand up to the next person as well. So you should always write for dissemination with other people rather than writing code that is most optimized and amazing so only you can understand and maintain it. That's what people in the 80s did or in the 70s did when they worked in mainframes to basically make sure they stay employed for the rest of their life because they only understood the code that they've written. And that's a very boring place to be in. I well, absolutely that, love that. <laughs> besides Ooh. that, the other thing is, is that a lot of these systems out there that are really, they're either widely distributed or they're sufficiently complex that you have to work with other people, right? Yeah. So if it's distributed, you have to work with the other people who are in the network that you're working in or, you know, something like Facebook. I mean, there's just no way that anybody can build that on their own, you know, with all of the different things and moving pieces and everything else. And so if if you can't work with other people, you're a hindrance to the rest of the system that's building that software. And so it doesn't matter how good you are. I would also argue like the mark of a mid-level senior developer, principal developer would be that they have, you know, they have the ability to help the other people on their team go faster. So they're not just concerned with like how much they can output, but they're concerned with how much they can increase the output of the entire team. They also need to be very self-assured. I mean, I always hired people that are much better than me because I want them to replace me. I want to do other things. I want to move on to the next level in the company or I want to do things like not not doing the code myself, but sitting in the architecture meetings where stupid things are being delivered that we didn't have to do. Every developer has this story to tell that like they have to build something that they hated because somebody, somebody miraculously up the chain that we don't know made that decision. Sooner or later, you should strive for being in that position where you can sit in those meetings and basically say like 
yeah, we can't do that. That's not possible. Or like it, it would set us back so much. Or here's the five things we already have. Why don't we use those? So I think the long-term career thinking is not what we're having in this space because it's moving so fast and it's innovative so much. We always think we're reinventing new things all the time. I mean, some of the de development patterns that we talk about these days that went into React and people like, oh, that's a new way of dealing with JavaScript. Yeah, it was a totally sensible way to deal with C++ or to deal with C when you had only a certain memory allocation. So a lot of best skill sets come from other from long time ago are now being sold as something uh, amazingly insightful that we do. But going back to the, the article, one of the things that I wanted to disrupt with that one as well, and also with the course that I've done on Skillshare, is I'm, uh, I started a JavaScript as a text editor in a browser. And I'm like, this is all I needed. And I found this the coolest thing ever because I didn't, I'd, I didn't have to pirate a, a buy an, an a C, a ball and C builder or something like that. I basically had a text editor and I started writing code and it executed in the browser. I didn't have a compilation step in between. It was the coolest thing ever to get immediately from the code to the execution. Before that, I wrote assembly language and there you always had to actually assemble it and then make an executable and then see what's what's coming out of it and hopefully it worked out. But in this case, you just had immediate the, the production and the consumption was next to each other. But we started to kind of um to kind of romanticize this a bit we're still thinking this is how developers should work and i think it's rather uh, disencouraging to see that we still want people to start to go through the same pains that we went through that oh color coding is terrible because then you learn how to program because you don't see the mistakes and that's just stupid we're wasting time that way we have such great editors like atom visual studio code they're written in typescript or in coffee script respectively so you can actually mess with them in the language that you use them for and you can enhance them the way you want to with thousands of add-ons and i love that the editors nowadays have color coding they have auto completion so i don't need to know the name of every dom function or dom uh, method but it auto completes them for me and it also has linting built in so while i'm coding i'm seeing my mistakes we always teach people to develop and then to debug so why don't we have linting as one of the first steps that actually the tool tells you you're doing something wrong while you're writing it much like uh, much like word underlines my my words when i misspelled them we are, we are in a we're in a stage where where tooling is so good that we could teach people good practices of programming just by using a proper editor when they start out and not just like oh you can use anything or here's vim and I find that kind of like a weird tradition to appear for people when they're like, oh, it's uh, you should be able to do to use anything. Yeah, sure. But it gets you much faster to where you go if you have a, an editor that handholds a bit for you and teaches you things while you're actually using it. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting, too. I mean, I've seen this with like the podcast processes and stuff where I'm a software developer and I realize that I can solve this problem with code or I can spend five minutes setting it up in Zapier, right? And so, you know, yeah, why, why go and, and fight creating a whole system around this when the system already exists? And then I can focus on the things that are actually going to make me better as a developer or podcaster, or, you know, whatever the example is. And I so, mean, I, yeah, would you know, I would disagree if it's a massive IDE that costs a lot of money. There should not be a, oh, a barrier to getting into JavaScript by spending money. But if it's an open source project that is freely available... Uh, great. That's exactly what I want people to do. I mean, th that's the best thing about the JavaScript world. It was always free and is always free. Yeah. So all the tooling is basically given back to the community, to the next developers. So 
by not uh, not introducing them to the tooling up front, I think we're we're making a mistake there. The same way we teach people still to use console logs and everything or alerts and everything, rather than teaching them breakpoint debugging, and that way they can actually have a much much more insight. And we don't have any console logs or alerts going into live code when people forgot to delete them. I still use console logs. Oh, I no. do too. No, no. <laughs> I read that and I was thinking that exact same thing. Well, almost everybody does. Me too. Yeah, but it's, but it's how we learned it. But we have the chance to get the next uh, next generation of developers never to make that mistake. Yeah, I've, I don't know, just in the past year have, I can't tell you how much I rely on this. And it's this kind of thing that I think as someone new, if you're struggling with, you know, do I learn React? Do I learn Angular? You know, you're like, what in the, do I learn Vue? What do I learn? I think there's all these like timeless things that you can focus on, like Git or your developer tools. There's all those kinds of things that you can focus on. Hmm. We're talking a lot more about like high level ideas of programming these days we're talking about the ethics of interfaces uh, can you make uh, can you make an interface that is inherently a transphobic or, or racist just by doing the wrong things and i think these are things to me much more interesting uh, it's much more interesting for somebody who gets into the market and starts developing if they're getting into the ux world or if they're getting into the building interfaces world how do you make i think when it boils down to what good code to me is, good code means it's about privacy, it's about security, it's about accessibility, and it's about uh, it's about readability and maintainability by other people. Everything else is just sugar on top. But we we never we never get to these points. We we go then later on like okay, you write this for loop that way, and then it's then it's much faster in Internet Explorer ten and in Netscape four when there is a full moon, and uh, we don't care if actually a blind person can't use that button because it's actually not a button but a link so instead of teaching people that what we're doing with that code is building products for other people and giving them the empathy of like understanding that an end user will sooner or later suffer from these 2.3 megabyte of javascript that they put in because they wanted to use that one framework that everybody uses right now we're not really uh, we're not really selling our job as a as a delivery what we are i mean we're delivery service we're there to build things for people to do things with I mean, no, nobody pays us for the JavaScript source code or something like that, unless you work in a browser or in, a, in an editor. Other than that, you're always building things for people to do things with. The money doesn't come from your JavaScript getting delivered to the end user. It's what they can do with these interfaces that brings the money in. And I think there is, is an interesting step to get more diverse and interesting people into the market if we don't go directly to the metal and go to computer science on everybody when they start learning JavaScript. I mean, I think that's the interesting for lack of a better word, message in your post and in what you're saying is just that, you know, having a deep, solid knowledge of the internals of React, you know, that you, you hear all these people and, and that's kind of a status thing, right? Is I know, I know all the things in React or all the things in Angular. And yeah, you know, it's it's other things that really matter. You know, it's it's the solutions we're building. It's the impact we're having. It's you know, it's it's those kinds of things that are really going to make the difference in what we're doing. And those are the kinds of people that people are going to want to work with. And those are the kinds of solutions that we're coming out with. They're the ones that actually solve people's problems. Mm. It's interesting when you look at like people that were betting on Silverlight or on Flashers there as their end-to-end uh, uh, career for the rest of their lives. Um, it's They've been going away really fast, but everybody I know from the Flash community actually either was very much focused on money up front, 
which is totally fine, but they were very open about it and not just pretended that everything is free, like you learn a lot in the JavaScript world. Or there were people that were super creative and all of those went now into like, I don't know, processing development, special effects for movies, these kind of things. I always uh, There was always this big fight between Flash and JavaScript when it was back then, when I was in the first browser wars and things. And I always found it was so annoying that we saw this as like two different ways. It was just a different way of dealing with the problem that was browsers not being capable back then. And a lot of what ActionScript did then became the newer JavaScript features as well. JavaScript learned a lot from ActionScript. It learned a lot from the JavaScript libraries that we built on top of JavaScript. So uh, knowing everything about something is uh, is kind of an uh, impossible thing to do in a market or in an environment that moves so fast. It sounds weird, but I always saw myself as a good librarian. I don't know everything, but I can look within two seconds where the, where it is. And I think that's more important a skill than actually knowing it all the time, because that way you just get yourself into a deep level specialist role. If you want to do that, by all means, do it. But make sure you bet on the right technology that stays around for a long time, or you will stand there with like, okay, we don't know anything right now anymore. Yeah, or, or I've even like said to people, you know, if you do want to learn a bunch of things, that's great. But kind of the overarching theme there is learn how to learn. Like, don't necessarily learn these things to learn the technology, learn these things so that you get better at learning things quickly, because you're always going to be learning something new. And there's a big gap in the market there. I mean, when I, I did like uh, Dakota dojos with kids in Sweden and also in, in England, and everybody teaches Scratch. Uh, and Scratch is this really cool tool, MIT. Uh, and it's really, uh, it's like these puzzle pieces you put together to make like loops and conditions and these kind of things. And as a developer, it was always hard for me to use that system because I never trusted anything where I can click code together, started with Visual Basic. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. But we teach kids these concepts of programming, but then the typing part uh, comes kind of far too late. And partly because we also don't use these tools that makes typing for them easier as well. And we have wonderful tools these days. Look at like JSBin, JSFiddle, uh, CodePen. Look at like, uh, uh, what's the other one, Skitch. Uh, it, it's just amazing that in the browser, you can now code things, try them out without having to install a preprocessor, without having to install your node environment. You basically can play with anything in a browser just by going to a URL. And back in the days, you always had to install all of that on your own computer, and you basically messed up your setup every single time you jumped from project to project. Yeah, I did a React course off of uh, Udemy or Pluralsight. I don't remember which one. But yeah, it was, here's the link, and it had everything I needed there, and all I had to do was write React components. That was it. Yeah, and it's it's amazing what we can do these days. Like browsers have come such a massive way to be interactive and uh, to to and also hardware became so much better. I mean, I'm sitting in front of my Surface Book here, and I mean, this thing is light as as, as my first my first laptop was about five times uh, uh, more heavy than this one, and this is like a quad core machine with like 16 gig of RAM, and I'm like, this is amazing that you have these things nowadays. Not everybody has them, of course. That's partly our problem. We write code that runs fast on those machines, and then we're surprised if people on an old Android phone tell us our products are not working. But uh, just having the access to the internet is such a wonderful privilege that we should be celebrating much more and actually 
using much more as well and just yeah write as much code as you want put it out there and let people play with it when when i started with javascript we had a problem you wrote like two pages of emails explaining people what you've been doing nowadays you can make a, a case study of the problem that you have and you put it inside a, a, a code pen or a js bin and then people you just send that link to people and they can fix it with you collaboratively there you can code together in these interfaces and not just have to explain what you're coding before you're sending it to the other person. That's great for teaching as well. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code DEVCHAT at Sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code DEVCHAT at Sentry.io. So overall, then, I, I just kind of want to bring this back around to the, the core points here or the core ideas. So let's say somebody has gone through a boot camp or free code camp or something. You're recommending to them that they get in and get used to breakpoint, debugging, uh, linting, get to know their editor, and yeah, use these systems that are out there, like get involved with the community around JavaScript as well. I mean, look at like GitHub and where these people, where these products are being done. A lot of JavaScript projects have, uh, first of all, most of them have a code of conduct these days. So it's actually the days where you got shouted at in the first two seconds while you're trying to do something is are not there anymore. So that's pretty good. Well, let's say they're getting better. And uh, <laughs> um, and the other bit is that uh, that you learn that this is a community effort that you basically you can you can help something out by fixing typos in documentation you can help something out by just changing cleaning it up because the code didn't look clean enough for these kind of things which you can do with an editor with like a, a shortcut nowadays as well so understanding that you're not going to get hired to be just a javascript person who writes something from scratch but most of the time what we're doing these days is putting different things together that other people have done we're using npm modules we're using this library we're using this component we're using these kind of things so uh, being a good person to um, to assess quality of a reusable thing is most most of the time makes you much faster applicable to a company than being the person that writes everything from scratch every single time because that's a new uh, uh, that's a new investment for a company every single time like. We have far too far too often we've got products that were written by this WizKit developer that then left and the next person comes in and shouts about everything being wrong and then restarts it from scratch. And most companies can't afford that. It used to be only car mechanics that used to do that. I mean, you went into the garage and they opened your car and they, the first thing they would rant for like five minutes about the last mechanic. And we kind of start doing that as well. And we shouldn't be doing that. We should be just... You leaving good code behind when we go as well, not only writing code from scratch. The whole uh, idea of writing code from scratch every single time these days, I think we kind of uh, reached a saturation point in the market where that's not that necessary anymore for most of the products out there. 
I mean, I've been using WordPress on my blog since 2005 and everybody told me like, why don't you use something cool, something new, something note-based? And I'm like, every time I look at it and I start installing something different, I just write a blog post instead because that's what blogging is about. It does the job. So why should I write something cooler and better when it, it does it? Yeah, I built a Rails system to run all the podcasts and eventually just moved back to WordPress because I could install a plugin that did what I wanted in five minutes instead of spending hours building the feature that I thought I needed. And being responsible for the security, for the maintenance and for the performance of your product as well. Most of the time, people think you write code and you never have to touch it again. No, most systems are being attacked every hour, every five minutes from the outside. So every mistake you made can be a security hole for the next next five years. So you have to revisit the things that you made yourself or start start working with the community and hand it over to a community and start growing a community. Far too many companies think you can write a JavaScript library, throw it over the wall, and a magic community will appear that they will maintain it for you and do something amazing with it. Leading these communities needs a lot of good skills for people skills that people that might just come from a JavaScript bootcamp might be great at and still work with a JavaScript product that way. Yep. So in what ways do you recommend that people get involved in the community? I mean, it seems like we've talked about blogging and, um, you know, maybe some Slack communities or something. Are, are there really good places for people to, to do that? I think meetups are a great thing to start with. If you just if you're, if you're a person who's okay with other people around you, I mean, there's, there's people who are freaked out by that. So you don't need to do it in person. So that's where Slack groups come in. That's where, uh, where GitHub repositories come in. That's where pull requests come in, these kind of things. But uh, if it comes to talking to people directly, there's all kind of cool meetups out there. It actually fascinates me that meetup.com had this resurgence in the last five years because it was this sleeping website that nobody cared about for years and years. And now it's the main thing to get meetups again um and unless you're in new york where they still care about foursquare a lot more weirdly enough but it's uh, these are the things where you should be going or you you can't just hang out or go to go to conferences a lot of conferences also uh, and that's something i do as a speaker i normally don't ask to get paid because i work for a company but what i don't want to do is that i'm the i'm the free option and other people who actually live off speaking uh, are not being invited so i want to make sure that it still costs the conference something to get me so instead of paying me i ask them to offer uh, tickets for free for people who cannot afford going so like mm-hmm. the, the diversity tickets or the community tickets where people can apply for. And I think every conference or every speaker that isn't relying on the money should do the kind of the same thing. So that way we can get somebody who just scratched enough money to get together to go through a boot camp and thinking they can do something now to dive in the community by applying for one of these things would be an interesting way in as well. There's, there's a lot of uh, opportunities out there. A lot of companies have open houses as well. I mean, uh, just getting online and going on YouTube on uh, and looking at the spe- at the conference talks of other conferences, that's a huge thing as well. I mean, I download them and then I watch them offline in the gym on a cross trainer. An average conference talks about 600 calories on a cross trainer. I've done something well and I've learned something at the same time. Or listening to podcasts. I heard people do that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, I mean, it's always fascinating when I coach people on public speaking in the, in the, in our community and they're all like, well, yeah, but I don't know that I'm not an expert. And you're like, well, nobody is like sharing your uh, knowledge or sharing your learning experience is as exciting as being the know-it-all person on stage that tells people something about the future of this and that showing like how, 
how React became interesting to me as a, uh, I don't know, as a, as a kindergarten teacher in a free time, just started user, uh, doing JavaScript. Here's what I built for myself doing that. That's an interesting story. And also the people who build React are probably excited about these things more than 10,000 people trying to be the expert on React again. We, yeah, one, think, one other thing that I'll add is a lot of people are usually, if they're learning to code, they're trying to come into the field and get a job. Not everybody, but a lot of people. Yeah. And by interacting with the community, you also wind up making contact with a lot of folks that can help you with that job search. You know, either yeah. they'll get to know what you're capable of, or they can give you advice on getting to the next stage, whatever that looks like for you, or things like that. And and it's just, it's a huge, huge thing to getting you a little bit further down the line for that. And that's GitHub is great for that as well. I, when I look at GitHub of prospective people who want to work with me, I don't necessarily look at the code that they've done, but I, I look at how they interacted in pull requests and in comments and in issues with people. That way I already know how much of a team player they could be or what kind of like how much abuse from people they can take and how they react with to it, which is something that happens in day-to-day -day life as well. So not necessarily being the person that puts the coolest code on the project, but the person that keeps the project alive or gets the project moving or dismantles an argument between two other people in a GitHub thread. That is a great, uh, a great quality signal for somebody wanting to hire you later on as well because you already got your name known. And just by, uh, I mean, at times when it comes to like really bad job offers, I mean, you just fork like 12 different very famous JavaScript repositories and people look at your GitHub account and think you're involved with them and then offer you a job. These are probably not the jobs you want, but <laughs> that happens. It's just bizarre by now. Yep. So one other thing that you talked about here is learning materials are free and in abundance, what's good and what's spam. How do you figure out what is really good quality content what what's worth your time versus maybe what's not worth your time that's tricky i mean that's something you have to learn over time uh, weirdly enough but i mean there's a few warning signs that it's like 27 things you need to know about that is probably a buzzfeed article you don't need to care about that like uh, when it comes to like this is easy kind of like the first steps or when the when the use cases are super uh, intense like when they're like do this one thing with that Thing. that's basically these are the kind of paid content that you get on con uh, on blogs like it's just this design blog that i always look at and they have this like paint a tiger in illustrator and you're like well great that's a good tutorial if you need to paint a tiger but how many times does that happen in your career kind of thing i think the best things right now and i talked about that uh, for a long time in the in the course and also in that blog post and in that talk that was connected with it is that mdn the mdn web docs which was used to be mozilla developer network is just basically to me the place to start this is the resource that is maintained by mozilla facebook Samsung, Google, Microsoft, there's eight, nine companies maintaining that code because we all realized having all of our own repositories means we have to hire people who do it full time and keep it up to date. It's an editable wiki so everybody can play there. So this is a great resource to start to look up what's wrong, uh, what you want to know about CSS, HTML and JavaScript, but also a lot of like tutorials how to get things done.
There's an, a few others like Smashing Mag has been very successful over the years as well and is still a very good resource. CSS Tricks is kind of a misnomer because by now it does everything. It doesn't only do CSS Tricks. It's also a great resource to learn uh, to learn things from. And of course, a lot of books out there that are given out for free online. I mean, the Eloquent JavaScript book, for example, is something that I helped with back then. And the online version you can read for free. You don't need to buy the book or you don't need to buy the Kindle. And uh, so these resources are something that you that you kind of should look at. Basically, if it's plastered in thousands of ads and things pop up in your face and ask you to actually allow notifications by the first time you read it, these are the things to avoid. Cool. Any anything that anyone else wants to bring up here? I think that the uh, the the one thing that we have a problem with as well with the, with start with people starting in JavaScript is that we have this trinity that I talked about where you have the editor, you have the browser, and you have the terminal. So all of these things are nowadays used to write your JavaScript. When you use Node or you npm packages, you actually need to use the terminal and you need to understand basic Unix commands and these kind of things. And we waste a lot of time by, uh, uh, well, we don't waste, we optimize our environments for ourselves. But we have all these articles about like how to set up your terminal to be perfect and professional, how to set up your editor to be perfect and professional, how to set up your browser and use these browser tools of that browser in that version. So that way we overwhelm new people coming to the JavaScript world as well. Like you do all these three things and they have to focus on all three of them and jump between these kind of, uh, uh, it's a minor thing, but having to alt tap to the terminal and then type something there going out of your editor or going into the browser and then doing the debugging there is it's costing you time. It's costing your mental time. That's not necessarily uh, important that way. That's why I love that editors these days and not like massive IDEs like Visual Studio Code and also Atom that you have uh, preprocessors and Git uh, uh, commands built in the editor as well and they have an inbuilt terminal so you can stay in one program and do your writing your debugging and your uh, and your distribution or you're setting it live to your server in the same program rather than having to jump in between these three all the time i find it very depressing when it, especially when it comes to css and people say like well the first thing to write css is you need to learn the terminal and you're like that makes no sense at all. There's so many wonderful things in CSS that you need to know about building interfaces with it that the terminal is far removed from. So it's not necessarily the thing to throw at people. But it's like uh, that trap of, I wish people would stop talking to, to starters as a preprocessor. I mean, like, oh, I want to learn CSS. Well, use SAS. It's much easier. I want to I want to learn JavaScript. Oh, use TypeScript because it's much better. Or use use uh, React because that's what Facebook uses. And I find these kind of like what makes us as experts more efficient is not necessarily the right thing for starters to 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 play with because then they become dependent on an abstraction that might sooner or later go away. I mean, nobody talks about less anymore. And that was the big success, the big competition to SAS. And a lot of people, it was written in JavaScript. So that was really cool for a lot of people. And uh, these things are quite fleeting. So I think getting a, um, getting a good knowledge of the basics is something very important. So when courses and when boot camps basically show you just like how to write a to-do list using these five libraries, that's a good way to get into a job where you might be a maintenance worker, where you might be somebody who actually uh, who actually uses things that uh, that are just built for you. But sooner or later, you will feel bad. It's not necessarily that you get don't get a job because of it, but there's nothing worse for me. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm strange that way, but being praised for something that I haven't done is a really weird feeling. 
when you, you just build a thing that you just put 12 things together from other people and you click them together, you connected them and people look at it and like, my God, you must be some magician, some great coder. And um, this is not helping our self-assurance as, uh, as people starting in the market as well. If we just using other people's work and get praised for it. Sooner or later, we have to understand why we chose these things and explain to people how to maintain them as well. And that makes it interesting. That makes sense. The only other tiny thing I was going to add was you talked about linting and I feel like some linting can be very just kind of opinionated and based on styles of the team, but there's some linting that you can put in place. And I think especially for newbies really encourages good habits. So I would encourage people to like look into, um, I think with ESLint you can do max params and psychomatic complexity, which again, I just feel like for new people, it helps, you know, yeah. it, it helps teach them, you know, good patterns. Yeah, I remember when Douglas Crockford created JazzLint and the first slide he always had was like, uh, it will hurt your feelings. Uh, and then people did JS Hint that basically was less uh, dogmatic about things that, uh, I mean, Douglas being uh, being dogmatic, you never heard about that, that before. Uh, and it, it it became much more interesting for people to use. But you're, you're totally right. I mean, the the best practice hardcore settings on some of these linting tools are not necessarily something that encourages people to start something new. I'm smack in the middle of that right now because now I'm working with WebHint, which we released three days ago, which is, uh, uh, it's a bit like, it's a hinting tool. So basically you, you put a URL in it and then it tells you all the things that are uh, problematic about this website. So it, it tests for accessibility, for performance, for security. It tests for kind of incompatibility with other browsers, compatibility issues, and it generally tests for broken links and things like that. So instead of just telling you that there's an error, there's also a click through to the documentation then explaining to you how to fix it and why it's an issue. And I think a lot of these linting tools that in, of the past didn't have that step. They just told you they did something wrong without explaining to you why it was wrong or how to fix it. And it's just depressing. That's not helping anybody. So having this like in one place where you have the documentation to explain you how to fix it and why it's a big issue and being completely configurable is the main change there. So there's a lot of other tools that are basically by a certain company or in a certain project and every project is different. So when I build something for an internet site, it's different than when I build something for a brochureware site or when I build a web app. So having the linting tools hardwired to certain specifications or certain best ways of working something is just not helpful in this case. So you want to make sure that your, uh, your, your linting tools are also configurable for the project that you're working on or even your skill level. Sometimes you hear like these things, I have no idea what they are and you just feel inadequate just looking at the error logs. And that's a feeling that I think no developer should ever get, especially when starting out. I totally agree with that too. Yep. So uh, can I circle back around to one thing that you said? Sure. You talked about uh, not relying on abstractions that may go away, right? But there's a counterpoint to that, and that is that the entire computer software industry is built upon relying on abstractions, right? So you, you use abstractions in what you do, and so there, I assume you feel like there's some point where you say, okay, it's safe to rely on this abstraction, but not this one. You mentioned, did you, you mention what I think TypeScript? Right off the bat, like don't rely on, don't learn that to start off with learn JavaScript because maybe that abstraction is going to go away. Um, obviously, people uh, who relied on CoffeeScript are probably now feeling like, well, maybe it seems like that wasn't the best choice because CoffeeScript is uh, integrated as part of the S20XX. 
<laughs> yeah, the the uh, I think the problem there is like how can when can you rely on one? A TypeScript is a different story to a degree because it actually is JavaScript itself, so it's not a different language. It just puts a type system on top of it, and it's backed by a lot of people. Like uh, Dojo people are now using it for everything. It's a Microsoft product or Microsoft open source product, so we're using it for everything. Uh, but yeah, I mean when when uh, I'm. My favorite example for that is jQuery. When jQuery came out and everybody was super excited about it because it allowed you to write so much, so many things so fast without having to deal with the weirdness of the DOM, everybody was like, I worked for Mozilla back then. They're like, why didn't you just put jQuery in the browser? Why, why do I have to load this kind of thing? And the answer is it's not standardized. It's not something that is maintained by a, uh, that's not backed up by a standard. That's not backed up by a consortium to make sure that browsers will always support this kind of thing. The uh, the pains well, that, that now it is. I mean, that, now the DOM API is almost a mirror of jQuery, and I'm fairly certain that's because they listened to that request. And yet, it's still being used uh, all over the place. And sometimes there's four different types of jQuery included in every website that you see out there. So that's where my problem is with abstractions. If you get reliant on them, and when they become a stumbling block, they should always be a uh, there should always be a fast uh, a faster way to do something complex. But if later on the uh, and that's a great example with the DOM APIs being now much more performant than they used to be and much easier to write and much more uh, closer to the metal in terms of performance in the browser as well. Now jQuery is the thing that's slow. Now that's actually making the first of all you need to download it, you need to execute it, and you need to do something with it. And if your product is not maintainable without jQuery, then you have then you have to keep it for the next ten years until every end user that you have has upgraded or whatever. So I think relying on abstractions makes total sense when these abstractions are yeah reliable. It's it's a very weird thing to say. It's very of course we don't know what's going to happen to the thing that we're excited about right now. I mean React was the great thing. Angular one was the great thing. Angular two is not compatible with Angular four. And now I think it's not compatible with Angular one, and that's a lot of issues for people as well. So oh it's six excellent. Um, well in in essence we we we're um, where I find this comes from, and this is a very bizarre thing to talk about, but I will talk about this in one of my next presentations in uh, the GDG in Nantes, in the DevFest, where as a market, we're, we're asked to deliver far too much, far too fast. And that's why we keep, keep using abstractions. That's why we keep making our developers much more uh, efficient in rolling out things out there. And maybe we should be actually uh, understanding that sooner or later, there's not as much longevity in our market that we think it is. That sometimes it's totally okay to create something from scratch uh, or, or switch to another system because you just cannot convert from one system to another. This is sometimes the uh, the only thing you can do. I, I used to work in an agency, and that was really cool because I worked on eight different projects like McDonald's, Coded UK, Visit Britain, HP Europe, and all of them were in different interfaces. They were like in Spring, the others were in Hibernate, other were in PHP, the others were in Perl. So I learned all these in these four years that I worked in this agency. I learned about all these environments. I never touched any of them again, but it made me realize that like saying like, this is the project that we're now using. 
and it will be like that for the for the end of time. Sometimes we just have to burn the thing to the ground and actually do something new. And this is where abstractions are kind of the weird thing. Like if we have to do that because the abstraction becomes outdated or unmaintained or becomes actually a performance issue because browsers have moved on or environments have moved on, then what was the use of the abstraction? Sometimes I think we're trying far too early to create too much and that uh, that way we actually we're not building something that can stay for longer a great example was the thing with uh, with the flatten thing the flatten of arrays that we now needed in the new javascript or that we put it in the new javascript uh, method in there and then we had a library uh, Mutools it was that had flatten array dot flatten. So basically, we realized in the uh, in the in the JavaScript uh, consortium in the ECMA consortium that basically, if we do flatten, we would actually make it the right thing. It's a sensible thing to say. It ex- describes exactly what that method does. But we would break a lot of like Alexa fifty web Alexa five hundred websites out there that are not maintained anymore. We would basically, the browsers would not be able to show the, the content of these websites because somebody relied on MooTools having an array.flatten because it actually messed with the prototype of the array uh, object rather than like making an extra method for it. So this is where these abstractions are in our way as well. The same is like when I worked in browsers, I still work in browsers, and we come up with cool new stuff. And then people built, immediately they built a uh, shim or a, a polyfill. And then everybody uses that polyfill. We never get a chance to actually test the performance of the real feature because nobody accesses it. And the polyfill doesn't do it. A lot, of, a lot of times the polyfill doesn't do it either. It just does the, the simulated for everybody. And then we, have a, then we have a problem that we can never make it work better, never optimize it for memory consumption because we don't have any data from people using it. So a lot of times we, uh, because of the versatility of JavaScript and the innovativeness of JavaScript, we can always do everything in it. And often we just make as a convenience method to do something immediately that is not in browsers yet. And then it will never get into browsers because we can become dependent on that convenience method. And that's really a sad thing, a sad state of affairs if you think about it, because it should be up to browser makers because we control the performance of the thing, we control the interactivity with the uh, with the uh, with the operating system. The browser itself is an, abstra- is an abstraction, so that's that's where optimization should happen, not like in another third party library that might not be maintained when the main developer doesn't care about it anymore. All right, so I think that's a lot of what you said is really great, but I think there's also a very valid counterpoint to put in here. Um, it's taking like your point about mood tools. Great, great point. It's really biting us right now um, and means that that whole flatten thing blew up in a really funny way. Yeah, but let's take, yeah, <laughs> let's take a jQuery as an example. I think there's a really strong argument to be said that if people didn't do what you would maybe, I'm overcharacterizing this as misuse, right, the browser because they relied on this abstraction jQuery, in my opinion, is the reason, the number one reason we are where we are today in the world of JavaScript and web development. It showed people, gave people a tool to do amazing things. The minute they could start doing some amazing things, they wanted more amazing things. It, it's possibly the reason, along with uh, uh, what Apple's big guy, crap, I forgot, may he rest in peace. Um, I'm blanking on his name. Steve right? Jobs? 
Steve, Steve Jobs. Jobs when he killed Flash by saying that Apple would no longer support Flash. jQuery and that decision are the reasons that JavaScript is creating high fidelity sites today. I pretty much agree. jQuery has, uh, we have uh, jQuery a lot to thank for. The problem is that we're still relying on it for a lot of things uh, for like backwards compatibility that just doesn't apply anymore. The main issue that I had with jQuery was not the technology itself, but how it actually how, and, and there was a teaching moment. People got super excited about building amazing things with a few lines of code. And this is a great way to get people into development because they're excited from the very get-go. They're not feeling overwhelmed. They're not feeling stupid. They just get an immediate uh, uh, satisfactory things from like writing code. But we never then went on and like, okay, what do we do besides this? A lot of people and nowadays with Node then being the other big revolution in this space, I think we now have more developers again that look at JavaScript as a language to actually write and develop it properly. But at the time, it was just depressing when I was trying to hire JavaScript developers to work on Firefox and people came in and only knew jQuery because they're like, well, nobody uses JavaScript anymore, right? So the uh, we overplayed that like be very successful with a few lines of code without uh, explaining that like this is a convenience method and it's not a, a thing that will stay forever and jQuery UI for example on mobile phones was a terrible performance problem that we're still suffering from nowadays a lot of build a lot of mobile interfaces were using jQuery UI and on old Android phones are just performing horribly where CSS animations would perform well because they get hardware accelerated but people just use these jQuery things because that's all they learn so a convenience method or an abstraction should be there and with the explanation to show you what kind of benefit you get from it. If people get directly only know it, then we have a problem with it going away. And that's when we have like developers being depressed when like Silverlight went away and these kind of things as well. But you're totally right. jQuery made what the JavaScript world is nowadays. Also, the way it actually brought around a community by uh, people writing jQuery plugins. So the whole plugins, the plugin architectures that we have in browsers, even editors we have in Node as well, comes from that kind of environment. So we have very much to thank, uh, a lot of th things to thank jQuery for. Right. Well, wouldn't you say then that some of your points are really based around kind of like precognition, like seeing the future? For example, Mootools made a choice that's affecting us poorly today. A lot of developers made a choice when they determined, decided to learn jQuery and not learn the underlying underlying DOM API and and uh, some of JavaScript. Right. They they made some choices that bit them later on, but at the time, right, we're just trying to get things done. Yeah, but so that's, the, that's the problem. The, that Mutools had the uh, the flattened thing was not the issue. That there is like lots and lots of highly frequented websites that are not being maintained anymore and are relying on it. That's the biggest issue. That uh, Going back to that, what I said, like we, we are asked to deliver far too much, far too fast. We, we have to continuously ship new features, do cool new things. And that's why we actually take these shortcuts. But seeing that like websites with millions of users are not maintained or are not maintainable as well because of these things, that's where something goes wrong. That's where not investing in a, a career or in an environment where people can actually stay and, and be a programmer in. So I, I think that the specific case of Mutals was just abuse and bad decision-making because prototypes were not invented for us to go around willy-nilly adding things. As I understand it, prototypes were invented because the language was developed in such a short time 
He knew that there would need to be things added that didn't exist. And so it was really supposed to be a, a machine extension, not a that polyfills were supposed to be uh, possible, but not that people would go rampantly polluting the namespace. That was that was just a a, a, a poor decision. Yeah, but it's 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 twenty twenty hindsight, isn't it? I mean, when I now yeah. go to Joe's uh, Joe's uh, thing at that time, that's probably what the Mood Tools team thought was a very fast and simple way to get things done. Right. Well, I think you can look at the, you could absolutely say the same thing about the whole Y2K issue, right? Yeah. Like in hindsight, none of them thought that the programs they were writing were going to be in use 40 years later. So or that, yeah, or that, that uh, memory would get so big at all. Yeah. 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 Right. They had to solve the problem they had to solve that day. And yes, could we get only the best engineers who know everything about everything so they can look deep into the future and say, Ooh, we got to do this this way we got to do that that way absolutely but the reality is we all i mean i certainly am not up to that task right <laughs> and i do a lot of development yeah nobody so. does uh, but the uh, i think the uh, we learned from that whole experience as well and we see just how many javascript libraries have gone away and like i mean when i were, when i was writing for ajaxian back then at one time we had like 532 ajax libraries out there that nobody uses nowadays anymore uh, so these things being so fleeting i think the newer generation of developers will see from the history of that if we keep telling them about it that it, that not anything is basically going to be the right thing and that there's a lot of pressure on open source projects like Vue or, or React to basically make sure that they cannot break. They 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 still have to they have to be very cognizant of what's what they're putting in because a lot of people rely on what they're doing, and it's uh, it's weird how some things died quickly. I worked on in Yahoo. I worked on YUI, and that was probably the best the best architected library out there. It was kind of over-architected and it was very Java-influenced. But at the same time, this thing can could run for, uh, I thought, could run forever. And then Yahoo changed their business model and everybody went somewhere else. It didn't get, it is not maintained the way it is right now anymore. But back then, what I learned about, what I loved about Yahoo uh, by UI is that you learned good JavaScript practices just in terms of like, memory consumption and like things like event delegation and making sure that your interfaces are smooth from the library by using it. Whereas other libraries were like, okay, here's something cryptic that you hardly can read, but actually it does these 50 things that otherwise you would do with 400 lines of JavaScript. That whole argument about I can do in four lines what you can do in 200 lines never to me was an optimization point because it's a dangerous assumption that the next person looking at these four lines of code will have the same knowledge and understanding how to maintain them. I mean, I wrote Perl. I can write two lines that are completely cryptic and do a lot of stuff, but I don't want to be the person to maintain it later on as well. <laughs> right. There's, there's definitely uh, so much to thank for uh, in this community, but there was also a lot of like a lot of hype around it, and also a lot of like uh, extra fluff. I mean, how many jQuery uh, library uh, jQuery plugins were there that did the same thing except for like two or three things differently, rather than like forking another one and fixing that one problem or extending the other one and adding your feature in? Everybody wanted to have their jQuery plugin to be the most upvoted one and and liked one and having GitHub stars and these kind 
of things. So that competition is always re releasing a lot of stuff in a short amount of time. But that also is a lot of uh, cognitive overhead for somebody who just comes into the market and has to pick the one. Which of the 300 is a good one, which we had earlier? How do you know if a resource is, main, is something sensible or if it's something that might go away? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, being able to see in the future would be a very useful thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry, probably. But yeah, I mean, I look at like people. I mean, I will have people in the company who who maintain massive NPM modules, and they just pulled out. They said like, I can't deal with I can't deal with the abuse anymore. I can't deal with the uh, accept uh, the expectations anymore. I can't deal with the pressure of these fifty lines of JavaScript that I've written that people rely on for their banking environment. So if I make a mistake that they're going there. So um, I hope that in the nearer future with what we're doing right now and by getting people that come from like the, a completely different background into our little world, that this kind of like uh, um, hero thinking is going away as well. That like any product that becomes a bit more used gets a community around them and several people being responsible for them, not just one person being responsible for everything. It's really tough when you when you have a job and you do a very successful open source project and you realize it takes about 400% of your free time. That's not what you, that's not the situation you want to be in because that's what you're not being, being paid for. Well, I'm going to stop us here. Before we do that though, Chris, how do people find you online? Uh, simplest way is uh, on Twitter, CodePoet with an 8 at the end. Or it's christianheilman.com is my blog. And that's there's an email and these kind of things that old people use. And um, yeah, I hang on lots of Slack channels as well. But yeah, christianheilman.com and Twitter is most likely the best thing. And I may not answer you publicly, but uh, if, I'm, if I'm excited about somebody and uh, you ask interesting questions, I normally DM people because... I got very tired of like everything public in Twitter ending up with like millions of threads where everybody wants to put their information in. So I'd rather make it more personal immediately rather than like allowing people to, to disrupt or annoy. But I'm trying to be as responsive as I can. All right, good deal. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash jabber. Amy, do you want to start us off with picks? Yes, and I'm going to apologize if it's a tiny bit noisy because I am not in my room anymore. Uh, so my pick is going to be something I saw on Hacker News this morning. And again, I feel like this is good for the audience that might be listening to the show today. Uh, it's called How to Deal with Dirty Side Effects in Your Pure Functional JavaScript. And I say this because especially if you take out, I think, maybe like the first third to the first half of the article, I think it's really good points for people that are just looking, you know, they've gotten started in JavaScript and they want to make their code a little bit more readable, a little bit more testable. So maybe... For beginners, I don't know if they'd want to read the entire article, but at least 50%, try to finish it. But at least the first half is pretty good. Awesome. Uh, AJ, what are your picks? Uh, I will pick just one thing today. That is Keybase. Um, so Keybase 
started out as just kind of um, like a, a web version of an MIT keyring server. And now they have an app that has chat. And I, I, I don't know that I can promote it per se yet, but I just started tinkering around with it, just use it with a couple of uh, buddies for a project we're talking about. And, and I, I like the idea of there being private chat and um, I, I'm hoping, I, I think that it stores the history locally. Um, so that would, that would mean that perhaps it would be, you know, keep history and, and be searchable in the future. So I, I like, I like that about it. And just, I'm really not into the mainstream decentralization movement because it's all about using anonymous networks and like anonymous connections. And I just find that to be inefficient and slow and not the kind of thing that I want. I want peer-to-peer -peer direct connections between the trusted parties that, that care about each other. But I, I do care about decentralization in, in that sense of like true peer-to-peer -peer connections and so I think what they're doing is cool because it, it kind of establishes a base of a technology where you can share keys. And, and I think the most important part of a peer-to-peer -peer web is encryption just because it establishes a private channel. And by that, I don't mean that it's secret, but rather that it is, it's owned by the participants. It's, it's their property. It's, it's private property to them. And so I, I, like, I like that direction and I'm, I'm interested to see what happens next. And, and I think it's kind of cool. Awesome. Joe, what are your picks? I just want to know, AJ, is it blockchain? That's all that matters. It has to be blockchain. Otherwise, it, it must not be secure or interesting. You know, I haven't looked that deep into it. I bet Chris knows. <laughs> I think you should go closer to your microphone. Oh, <laughs> was, I was too far away? No, that was, Dang it. That was for me. Oh, was it, I that's think he just verbally poked Joe in the eye. Yeah, he just, he just poked me right in the eye. Yuck, 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 yuck. Mm. All right. Um, here's my uh, picks. So first off, I always want to mention Framework Summit coming up in October in Utah. Come and check out an awesome conference about React, Angular, Vue, Elm, Ember, Preact, everything. I'm super excited for that. And then I've been playing a board game lately that I really love. I've had it for a while called Clank. If you're looking for a really fun board game, Clank is absolutely awesome. There's uh, two versions of it and two expansions for one of the versions and an expansion coming out for another version. So it's really cool. My third pick is something really weird that I sort of encountered and it's really hard to describe called ASMR. If you've never heard of ASMR, you should definitely go and hit like the Wikipedia article or see a YouTube video about it. Um, My partner's all over that. She's really excited yeah. about that, yeah. Yeah, it's so strange. Autonomous sensory meridian response. I'm not even going to try to explain it. But if you have no idea what this is, going and checking it out will like just blow your mind at how <laughs> how funny some things are. You need to wear headphones. That's it. Don't watch any of the videos unless you have earbuds yeah. or headphones on. Earbuds or headphones. Otherwise it won't it won't do it. Right. And those are my picks. Awesome. I hate it when you recommend board games because then I have to add them to my Amazon wish list and I wind up spending money on them. So, dang it, Joe. <laughs> Sorry, Chuck. I'm going to jump in here with a few picks myself. So the first pick is the Get a Coder Job course that I've been working on, uh, making some progress there. So definitely check that out. Um, I did mention that it's going to be released um, at least a completed version. I, I may still 
continue to update like the ebook and stuff and clean stuff up and add a few things. But for the most part, it'll be out and done by Labor Day. And I'm pretty sure this will come out after Labor Day. So uh, just go check it out and uh, pick up a copy if you're out there looking for a job. I'm also going to pick a few other things. Uh, there's a book series that I've been uh, listening to on Audible. Uh, it's the Iron Druid Chronicles. And the last book came out a few months ago. And uh, I highly recommend the series. It was a terrific series. I'm not giving a glowing recommendation to the final book in the series. But I, I really did enjoy the, the rest of the series. All the short stories and novellas that go into it and everything else. Just a terrific, fun series. Um, the last book, I'll just give you my opinion. I, I, it was good. And it you know kind of rounded everything out appropriately. The, the real issue that I had with it were, was two things. And one was just that it got a little bit preachy on the sort of environmental and evils of capitalism and you know, went into a little bit of stuff about religions and things like that, that I, I just, I didn't feel like I really needed a lecture on from the book. They're not so overlong that it's hard to stomach, but it did bug me a little bit. And then the other thing is, is that I think, I think some of that was there in the other books, but there was a character that provided a lot of comic relief that didn't play a major role in the last book. And so I, I think it, I think part of it was that and part of it was that it wasn't broken up so that I was sitting there kind of laughing my way through it. So anyway, I'm just going to leave that out there. But uh, it's a nine book series. The first eight books I, I absolutely enjoyed. And it's just the ninth book that I, I did enjoy. I just didn't love it like I love the other books. So we'll put that out there. But yeah, terrific uh, book series. If you're looking for that, it's by Kevin Hearn. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, I'm also going to be speaking at Framework Summit. So if you want to come uh, hang out with all of the Framework folks and meet me, that would be fun. Um, I like meeting people, so I'll I'll let you know about that. And I'll probably have something pulled together um, on devchat.tv about StimulusJS, which is what I'm going to be speaking about. So if you're looking into any of that, yeah, let me know. Uh, Chris, do you have some picks for us? I have a few. I didn't prepare for that, but that's good. Uh, if you want to see me next time stateside, I'm going to be at Web Unleashed in Toronto, which is, of course, not America, but the not the most. Uh, but that's a really big conference coming up there. There's a few things there. I'm really excited about a YouTube series lately called Kurzgesagt. It's in English, but they also make a German one right now, which is like six to five, uh, six to eight minute videos about all kind of like very high level physics things and chemistry things. And like, it's about, they have one on overpopulation. They have one on like, um, on like uh, legalization of drugs. They ha uh, they're really well researched. They're really beautifully animated. And they're a great like six minute to put time in. Same on Netflix. There's a series called Netflix Explained which is uh, also very well done. It's about 15-minute videos, and it's not as preachy as like TED videos have become or not as formulaic as TED videos have become. So these are great things to look at. And for a quick laugh or a quick uh, thing that always makes me feel better, it's uh, it's a very British thing, but there's a book by called by Steve Stack. It's like $1.99 on, uh, um, on Kindle, and it's called It Is Just You, Everything Is Not... Sh and that's basically a book just listing beautiful things that you never think about just how, how we have them around us and how how exciting it is that these things exist. And it's that's kind of a book that I always pick up if I want to have a quick laugh and uh, I basically want to enjoy myself. So these are things that I think might be worthwhile looking at. Um, that Kurzgesagt stuff is really, really good. I also just supported them on um, on Patreon because uh, they, they need more funding, but they've done a tremendous job doing these kind of uh, uh, hard-to-explain things in a very simple fashion. I mean, I looked at the quantum computing one, for example, and I finally understood it. So this is some very exciting stuff out there. Awesome. 
And what's right. it called again? Uh, Kurzgesagt, K-U-R-Z-G-E-S-A-C-H-T. <laughs> okay, I'll give you the link. <laughs> yeah, we definitely awesome. need a link for that one. Yep. It, it, it basically means a nutshell. Huh. Yeah, awesome. German is wonderful. But yeah, that was fun. Thank you for coming. No worries. That was good fun to me as well. <laughs> Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.